out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello, welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, we'll be continuing to look at uh, Lovecraft's letters uh, drawn from the fourth volume, the selected letters of, of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and specifically, this episode will cover the letters written from, a, uh, what does that say? Sorry, couldn't read my handwriting for a minute. So uh, October uh, 1932 to January 1933. So um, about four months, uh, winter time. So we know Lovecraft did not think much of the cold. We'll see if that comes up in in these letters. Um, it usually does in winter time. Um, so um, what's going on in these this period of time? Well, I think a big thing is his his conversation with with E. Hoffman Price regarding. The writing of the of the sequel to to the Silver Key, um, not too much in politics. I want to say this is the election time, but he doesn't say too much about uh, the election of nineteen thirty two, which of course elected um, Franklin Roosevelt and and led to the New Deal. Uh, the U.S. response to the Great Depression doesn't really come up. The, I think in the next episode we'll cover a little bit of what he has to say more about the rise of fascism uh, in. In Germany, which also has its own ties to the the Great Depression in a way, but uh, you know, a lot of continuation of, of the things we've seen before. His frustration with public publication and the in the, the the kind of the popular magazine fiction that that sort of continues throughout. I've you see it throughout this volume actually. Um, but anyways, let's jump into uh, what we have here. So the first letter I want to look at, or the first person I want to look at, is his is uh, Elizabeth Tolbridge, uh, his longtime correspondence. Um, uh, so the first letter we have here is dated October twenty eighth, nineteen thirty two, um, and we see him talk a little bit about his Quebec trip. Um, he complains a little bit about some some eye issues he has. Um, but uh, mostly he talks about the end of his, his, I guess, his tour of the Northeast that he took that summer. So it seems like a seasonal thing for him. Um, I'd go back and double check that. But I, I think that sounds about right. He didn't do as much traveling in the winter as in the, the, the summer. But, um, you know, he often did a lot during the summer. He definitely did a lot of different tours of New England towns. Uh, he also mentions a little bit about poetry, specifically the Harris Collection of Poetry at Brown University, and he's just telling her about what she might be able to find there. Um, so uh, not too much to say about this letter, in fact. Uh, he wrote a much more substantial letter to her on December 14th, 1932. Um, well, this was another big thing in the, the, these letters. It's the death of Henry S. Whitehead, um, you know, another... Writer, someone that Lovecraft corresponded with uh, and uh, revised stuff for. We've actually uh, looked at a couple, well, at least one of his revisions, uh, The Trap, uh, in the previous series. So, um, but but his death seemed to have affected Lovecraft quite a lot, and he wrote uh, about this to various people. And he, I think he actually wrote the, the eulogy to Whitehead in Weird Tales. 
Um, but he does complain in this letter that he hasn't been writing a lot lately and, and you know, outside of the revisions. And of course, that, that fits with what you see him publishing under his name and writing at this time. There's not that actually many more stories uh, after 1933. Um, there's a handful of good ones, but there's not that much he wrote under his name. So he talks about the, uh, you know, the, the problem he has uh, writing. But after this, he gets into some really interesting stuff about... Um, um, you know, the decline of civilization. This is old philosophy. And if you read through his letters, in some sense, there's not much new here, but it's always nice when he kind of goes back to these themes because he comes at it in different ways with different correspondence. Um, he writes, for instance, when he gets into this, uh, when you assume the rightness of a dying civilization, you can hardly mean more than that it was roughly adequate to spend conditions of the bygone age which evolved it. No civilization can have any rightness or other meaning apart from the conditions to which it's related. The obsolescent Western culture was a product of a life hinging on agriculture and handicraft. In the machine age, it has no meaning, end quote. And that's, of course, a key concern of his is the rise of this kind of machine age that's going to basically be the end of Western civilization as he knows it. Sorry for the, the kind of cliche there, uh, but that's sort of how he sees it. This really gets me thinking, and I must have mentioned this before, but it gets me thinking of like Ibn Khaldun or... Uh, or uh, Toynbee, you know, the both Ibn Khaldun, of course, wrote like in the 13th century or 14th century and um, Toynbee in the, you know, at the time Lovecraft was, was around, but Toynbee's study in history. Well, both of these works talk about kind of how civilizations emerge uh, in kind of a struggle against some basic conditions of living. Uh, Toynbee is especially clear on this. Uh, I guess for, for Ibn Khaldun was more this nomadic people come in and establish a civilization based on certain cultural principles that, and, and then eventually they'll get to decadence. That's what they share. They both believe that civilizations will rise with a certain kind of culture and conditions and then reach a stage of decadence. Uh, I don't know if he got it from Toynbee directly, but it seems to be hinted at quite a lot here. Um, but then, of course, the machine age being the end of, of that, that culture. Um, and he also talks here about the failure of Christianity as he calls it a naive and unscientific culture, uh, an idea. Of course, it comes from the West, too. So it comes from this Western culture that he's trying to defend from machine culture. But he sees it as, as, as kind of an unnecessary aspect of it. Um, instead, he has his belief in kind of human societies rather than in Christianity. I think that's his problem with it is it's somehow external to, to human cultures themselves. And he actually compares this to Bolshevism. Um, he says, quote, very amusingly, the Christians of the third and fourth century AD were in exactly the same position as the ragged, hungry marchers of today. The they were, then they were surely Bolsheviks, ignorant and intolerant of civilization and arrayed against the prevailing vested interests on the surface of law and order. Then a political accident put them on top. So that's, he's kind of here comparing what brought the Bolsheviks to power in Russia to what brought kind of Christianity to the rise of the Roman Empire during the declining years of the Roman Empire. So that's kind of some interesting stuff here. Um, and he mentions the Russian decline in spirit since the rise of the Soviet Union. Um, and that, that's not much, there's not much more here, but he does get a little bit into the weakness of, of August Derleth. Um, but, but I think that's it. Now, the third letter in this period that he writes to Elizabeth Tolbridge will be interesting to you if you're interested in philosophy or, 
for writing and literature. Uh, that's actually something he talked a lot with her about throughout the years. Uh, this letter was January 24th, 1933. Uh, he mentions going to a lecture at Brown uh, on Spinoza. And, you know, he had fairly good opinions of that. Um, but he talks a little bit then about his own writing, how he can't write spontaneously, how he really can't write detective stories. He's, he talks about he's really, really limited in what he can write. And then he goes into his old complaint about Victorian literature and Victorianism. And he just sees Victorian literature as full of, full of hypocrisy. Um, so anyways, these three letters to Tolbridge are pretty, pretty diverse in their, their topics. Um, but, but build on things he'd been saying for, for a while. All right, next we have uh, two letters to August Derleth, um, both in 1932, one in October and one in November. So specifically, he's praising a, a, a manuscript or story he got from him uh, for Forward House um, by Derleth. It's a common thing he, you see in the letters to, uh, between the two is Derleth is giving Lovecraft some of his writings and Lovecraft will usually praise them and give some suggestions to them. Um, and he does the same here. Um, he, you know, one thing he really bothered him about Derleth in his writing was how Derleth seem to not ever get like dialect and regional characters quite well um you know he so he the way he says it is like oh this is a great story you know but you know here's some suggestions about dialect <laughs> you know and, and regional grammar and things like that um but he he, he mentions two specific things about settings one is oh the the mostly he gets to kind of the uh the, like religion and family names and dialect in New England, which what he knows. So he kind of gives some advice about setting fiction in New England and making things a New England story. But he also uh, talks about Wisconsin as a setting, saying, uh, you know, quote, whether such an anomaly developed on Wisconsin, so you know better than I, but unless you have a historical warrant for the combination, you had better change either the names or the denomination. So he's kind of open, open to the idea that maybe Durleth knows more about this distinctive Wisconsin setting that he so often used. So he's a little bit generous there, but, um, you know, but that's that. But I, I think he's kind of pushing Durleth to maybe really get to know the details of the setting that he's writing for in order to really make those stories you know, bring them into life in, in interesting ways. So that's all to say about that. The next one, uh, that one was October 29th. The next letter is sometime in early November, 1932. Uh, in fact, written right after the previous letter. And here he talks about coincidence in fiction, coincidence as a, as a device. Of course, it's perhaps in Lovecraft's United Ideal to use coincidence because it, it, it draws you out of the plot a little bit. But the fact is they do happen. And so fiction that totally never uses coincidence uh, wouldn't be drawn from life either. Uh, so he says there's basically um, two contexts in which coincidence can be re reused really effectively in fiction. So this is his advice to Durleth about this. And what he says one is like a strange story where coincidence can can fit into a story and be more believable because the story is outworldly in a way. And maybe that coincidence could be itself part of the rules of, of a very strange or bizarre universe. He says the other is, is really broad tales, like multi-generational epics, uh, maybe otherworldly fantasy kind of epics. 
in which one small coincidence might have huge ramifications over many generations over the long scale of time. Um, so I think those are actually pretty good advice. Not, a, not I'm not a writer myself of fiction, but you know it sounds that that's a that's a dangerous thing, right? Because you know when it happens, it can seem like a deus ex machina, or it can seem like uh, the writer just taking the cheap way out to solve problems. Um, but at times, it does make sense because they do happen to people. All right. So next, we have a letter to Robert E. Howard, November seventh, uh, nineteen thirty-two. I'll get to this letter uh, in more detail later on when I do the, the Means to Freedom uh, anthology of, of letters between Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Um, but this is, this is a letter where you really start to see the tension between the two. Um, if you've read those letters, uh, you know, or if you're familiar with that Means of Freedom book, one of the major things that happens in there is those letters get really get, if not, they're not nasty, nasty, but you can tell a lot of conflict and, uh, you know, between the two and misunderstandings about tone and about, uh, you know, and it happens, you know, some, if you've ever written something to a, to someone and it comes off harsher than it would in real life, you know, that that's a real thing that happens. And maybe that's part of what's happening. We'll get into a little bit more of that, but you can start to see the deepening of the conflict between the two over their ideas. Um, and that's addressed here. Um, but he does mention some other interesting things, which we'll get into more in that later series. Uh, one is he does go on here quite a lot about his hatred for seafood, which uh, the taste and the smell, and he, and he comments a little bit about some other offensive food choices. Um, but he does get into some stuff about fascism here. He, he mentions, uh, he gets a little bit of voting rights about the need for high culture. And he finally says that in a machine culture, in, in this machine age, this modern age, maybe an ideal government for the machine age is fascism. And, and I'll just quote this directly. I think if I can find the exact place he says it. Yeah, here he says, uh, as so, as I have said, my ideal of a government fitted to the machine age is a fascistic one with certain basic points so firmly embedded in its essential ideology that no laxity or latitude of admission could wholly nullify their operative force. Such points would include the government's control of industry in a manner designed to spread work and reward it adequately and to eliminate the profit motive as much as possible in favor of the demand supplying motive, a control probably amounting to ownership in the case of large industries. Plus the system of pensions and benefits for the unemployed and unemployable, end quote. Um, I don't know if that's a very good description of fascism. I, I think, you know, if you, if, if you believe there has to be some degree of central planning to manage a socialist economy, I think you might not fully be, be, not, be not far from, from this description, right? A demand supplying motive, right? Production for demand, uh, is something that you hear socialists talk about as a response to this ecological crisis um, or just a more rational form of production distribution. So I don't know. It, it's, it's, this is a theme that's going to come up with a lot of his comments about fascism at this time is that he doesn't seem to really be talking about what we think of when we think about fascism, like this authoritarianism and militarism and, and this deep racism uh, you know, genocidal behavior, war. And that's not really what, what Lovecraft means by this, but it's, it's the word he finds to describe what he thinks could be a solution to, to machine culture. Um, but it's certainly interesting stuff. Uh, 
you know, if you're, if you're interested in, in Lovecraft's sort of ideology and his philosophy. Um, he writes again to Robert E. Howard on January 1st, 1933. Um, and this kind of picks up on the earlier themes where he criticizes um, kind of individual freedom as in a machine culture being leading to all these detrimental social effects. Uh, so he's not, he's not against freedom as such, uh, or even individuality as such, but he thinks it's, he, th he actually mentions at one point there was a golden age of individualism, which I guess for him would be the 18th century or so. Um, but he says here, untrammeled individual liberty, sorry, he used the word freedom, untrammeled individual freedom of action is nothing sacred or necessarily inviolate. All civilization with its infinite enrichment of life involves more or less of it. But likewise, untrammeled individual industry and profit getting are nothing sacred or necess necessarily inviolate. If modern conditions give to laissez-faire individual profit getting a deteriorous social effect, i.e. narrow concentration of resources and a complete impoverishment of the majority, then that form of industry and profit getting like unrestricted individual liberty must go. End quote. Uh, I think this is building off of his comments that the best government for a machine age would be this fascistic government he described in the earlier, in the earlier letter. Um, but he does define something here called perfect liberty as something to preserve and defend. Quote, perfect liberty of thought, opinion, scientific research, and artistic endeavor can certainly be salvaged in a truly civilized modern state, though Russia has repudiated them. End quote. So that's some good stuff. He also builds on a little bit on what he said before about seafood, laying on more about how gross fish are in his, his point of view. All right, that's two. I, again, both those letters we'll look at the entirety of in, in a future episode. All right, uh, next, Vernon Shea. Two letters to Vernon Shea, a younger writer. So a lot of these letters have, have been of the type of like advice to... Uh, to a younger writer, although I think in the previous episode we saw a pretty nasty one. Um, to or was that notes I took for a future episode? I don't know. Anyway, there's a letter to Vernon Chase somewhere in here where he really uh, comes off as quite racist and anti-Semitic, unfortunately. Um, but but I think it's I think it's in the next episode, to be honest. Uh, sometimes I have trouble keeping track of what I've talked about and what I took notes on. But anyways. Uh, he mentioned, he talks about a story that Shea wrote and sent to him and gives his advice about it. Um, he talks a little bit about reality and, and the use of realism in fiction. Uh, and he mentions Keats and Shelley being the height of poetry in his view. But that all poets, including Shea, uh, need to find their own voice and medium of expression. And he thinks you're still, he says you're still young enough to find that out um, for yourself. Uh, the letter ends with a little bit of, uh, at least the selection of the letter we have here, ends with a little bit of interesting commentary on, on localism in writing, something he's, uh, he talks a lot about in his other letters to other people. And I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a well-taken point. I, th I think it's certainly uh, an important part of fiction that it's, that its regionalities are, are believable. And he plays around with certain local phrases, uh, for instance, the localism for the term sidewalk in, in New Orleans. He just gives us an example, but he gives other examples, too, about how, you know, language is very important. This is very much the point he makes to Derleth, too, who he thinks his, his prose was kind of too just general and, and lacked that regional character and flavor. Um, 
and I guess we can interrogate how well Lovecraft does that in his stories. I tend to think he, he does it pretty well under the stuff he publishes set in New England because he is familiar with that, right? And whether he does it as well in some of the, the revisions that are set in other places like Mexico or the Southwest or, or, or Mid-America, the South, you know, you can you know, debate that, I suppose. All right. Then we have uh, a December 22nd letter to Vernon Shea. This actually does deal with the 1932 election a little bit. So let's let's take a closer look at it. Um, I think this is the only time he mentions it in this whole set of letters. Um, he says, uh, quote, as for politics, the vote for Thomas would have been simply thrown away. Uh, so he's rejecting kind of third party voting. Although in this case, it wouldn't have caused any changes in results, this being a blowout election. When there are two main candidates in the field with any real choice between them, it is never wise to vote for a third and hopelessly minor one whom you may happen to like better than either of the big boys. If too many do that, it may result in an election of the main guy that the main guy wants least. Common sense tells us that the big fellers are the only possible winners. In this contest, Roosevelt was undoubtedly preferable to Hoover, and Thomas was probably near realities in either of them, but much in Thomas's program was unwise. To give large powers of decision to the masses of the people is hopelessly silly and disastrous. Some way must be arranged to effect a fresh redistribution of resources, now that intense mechanization has upset the ancient economic order, without removing the machinery of government from carefully trained hands. End quote. Uh, and then he gets into automation and technocracy. It's, it's actually some good stuff here. Um, but who's this Thomas he's talking about? Well, that was the socialist candidate, um, Norman Thomas. And you see here, Lovecraft is, is actually somewhat attractive to some, some of his ideas. And I don't know much about this campaign. It's, it's, I'm just kind of basically familiar with it. Um, the Democratic Socialist Party. Of course, this was the, the party that Eugene Debs ran ran for uh, president all those years at the turn of the century. Um, but he didn't have a really great show in this election. He got uh, a little less than a million votes. It's not too bad. I mean, Roosevelt got 23 million votes in that election. Thomas got almost 900,000, 2% of the total votes. So it's not a bad show for a, for a third party candidate. Um, but you know, significant enough, it, it might have, it might, you know, well, it didn't change this election, but you know, in a closer election, it would have been significant. Anyways, that's that. But it's interesting that that Lovecraft here does throw um, some kind words for um, the the socialist candidate. But mostly, what this letter gets into is technocracy and automation which I think is really, really interesting stuff. Uh, and he thinks this is going to be a problem. If machines are doing the work. Uh, first of all, it's going to be dominated by technocracy because they're not going to know how the machines work, essentially. Um, so democracy becomes less meaningful. Power is more in the hands of the people who run the machines, but also just what are people's work going to be? And then it's going to exacerbate inequality. So he actually does think Thomas maybe had some solutions to that, but he wasn't going to win. Um, Anyways, uh, then he talks a little bit about Robert E. Howard. He, 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 I've noticed that of all the people that he, of these correspondents that he talks to other people about, like it's like Robert E. Howard and Durleff are the most common. I mean, he'll mention Clark Ashton Smith usually saying you should look at this thing by Smith. Um, but 
usually he'll he'll talk about Darleth a lot and he'll talk about Robert E. Howard a lot. And and you can tell a real difference in whether, you know, what you really see that Howard was like a if not like a intellectual challenge to Lovecraft and when he because he when he's talking to other people about Howard, he's talking about Howard's ideas. And and the challenge of Howard's ideas to Lovecraft's own. In this case, he talks about uh, of violence in human life and, and sp sports and physicality and these kinds of things. It's kind of interesting. Uh, he writes, Howard is so used to violence that he can hardly I can ha he can hardly believe it when I tell him that there are no fights in the public streets of the East except in slums and gang ridden areas. Um, anyways, good stuff. Um, nice nice letter, really good one I think. And that's uh, December 22nd, 1932. All right, now we got a host of letters, six of them, um, the bulk of what's left to talk about in this episode, uh, to E. Hoffman Price. Um, now, the context of all this is he, they're beginning to work on this silver key, um, this silver key uh, sequel. Now, the first letter doesn't get into this too much. It's November 18th, 1932, where mostly they're talking about Derleth and Derleth's attempts at, uh, at some more serious writing. Um, and he talks also about changing tales after their original publication and acceptance and how Lovecraft says he sort of tends to defer to the businessmen on that account. He, he doesn't seem, he says he doesn't really fight too hard for the... Uh, on these issues of, of minor changes. I mean, he, he kind of says here, well, if an editor is making a change after it's been accepted, it's probably not going to be a major major change. And it's probably for a good reason. And, and he's not uh, he's not the responsible for the finances of the magazine. When he says, I'm not a businessman, I kind of defer to the business people. He's talking about the people who run these magazines, right? Um, he says, I am no businessman. In fact, I'm conspicuously lacking in all that pertains to the commercial mood and psychology. So I read into this a little bit of more of his ennui about just the state of the publishing market and just saying, oh, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. So um, that's what in that that that's what is in that letter. Um, then we have um, one dated just a week later, November 26, 1932, where he talks about the reprinting of Picture in the House, um, which. So this was actually put together by Price, I guess, or arranged by Price. And, and Lovecraft was happy to see it uh, reprinted. Of course, reprinting some of his stories was a source of income for him later in his life when he wasn't getting too much from, from new stories. Um, by and large, this is a really encouraging letter to E. Hoffman Price as a writer, where he talks about his own limitations. He talks about the challenges of being a weird artist, uh, working in the weird fiction market. Uh, he, you know, he talks about how how much of a struggle it is to write as a cosmic-minded ri writer and that he struggled with it himself. And he kind of is, it's very sympathetic, I guess, to Price's own struggles and, and conflicts and, and as he's learning to be a writer. Now, again, Durless, uh comes in as a, as, a, as a different example of a, of a weird fiction writer that he can learn from or, or study or follow. He writes... Uh, Quote, this urge and ability to become as it were totally different people in quick succession is the distinguishing quality of the really substantial fictionalist. 
Look how Derleth does it. He, a husky young egoist at 32, can for a time actually be, in the psychological sense, a wistful-faced old lady of 85, with all the natural thoughts, prejudices, feelings, perspectives, fears, prides, mental mannerisms, and speech tricks of such an old lady. Or he can be an elderly doctor, or a small boy, or a half-demented young mother. In every case, understanding and entering into the type so fully that, for the moment, his interests and outlooks are and difficulties and idioms are those of the character, with the corresponding qualities of William, August William Derleth quite forgotten. He can get the pathetic or savage or cold or humorous or ardent or whatever it is, mood with perfect authenticity for the time being, no matter what his own moods tend to be, because he temporarily enters into the characters and sees what they, not Derleth, sees and feels what they feel. It is mimicry on a grand scale. End quote. So, a fair amount of praise for Derleth there as a as a writer of characters. And of, and of course, that's not something Lovecraft is very well known for, right? Um, the next letter we have if to Price is on December 7th, 1932. This is his uh, about the memorials for, for Henry S. Whitehead. Um, you know, and he has a lot of praise and, and just memory. He, he goes into a lot of his memories of, of Whitehead, I guess. It's, 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 it's a pretty long paragraph from where he talks about his, you know, his, what he remembers of him and, and some of the actually physical material culture he has that, that keeps him, keeps Whitehead in his mind, if you will. He also praises some, what some of his best stories are. And he lists them for to Price, basically suggesting that he looks, checks them out. Um, then we have him get into a little bit more weird fiction, kind of building off of what he was saying before. Um, in this case, kind of building off the character ideas. So in the previous letter, he talked about how much Derleth is good at characterization. Here he says that characterization must be based on the situation. Um, and also that in weird fiction, characters are, are the what he calls the phenomenon. The way he writes this is, um, quote, however, as you have suggested, and as I have said before, it certainly isn't necessary to draw every possible human type in order to produce literature of a certain type, especially weird literature. In many sorts of literature, weird, most of all, the real protagonists of the drama are phenomena, not people at all. Hence, if we strike the proper atmosphere and unfold the chosen events in the most vivid possible fashion, we do not need to rely on heavily, very heavily on delineation of subtleties of human characters, end quote. And of course, as I said, that this is not Lovecraft's strength. He's better at the mood. He's better at the, the the ideas. He's better at the big picture, the settings. But his characters are are pretty weak. I think. Um, can you think of a really standout H.P. Lovecraft character in the in the way you can think of a Stephen King character? Uh, you know, Stephen King really excels at really memorable and sympathetic characters and great villains, right? Are, are there any Lovecraft villains that 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 you sit and think about and 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 kind of become part of your life? But you know, I've read a lot of Stephen King, and I think his characters do become part of your life, right? Uh, they they sort of become your friends or your fears, but you can't say that with the Lovecraft characters. And and he might just be saying this be, the way this way that where the f real character is the phenomenon because that's what he's good at. That's fine. It's, you know, Lovecraft's great in spite of not being able to create the most memorable characters all the time. Um, I think I think both are good. Of, of course, if you just have character and no ideas, that's that's a weakness as, as well. Um, you know, anyways. 
I think there's more to say about it. Let me know what you think about this. Um, you know, I guess Stephen King, I think, does well in both elements, right? He's, he gets off in the mood, the settings very well. He has a lot of the characters. His ideas are pretty good, usually. But I, I come to him really, I do come to him, I, I, I want to admit, for these really memorable and strong characters that are really well developed. He also writes really long books, so that gives him the time to develop these characters. But even in a in a book like It or The Stand, where you have like hundreds and hundreds of characters, so many of them are memorable. So many of them really stand out, and it, he does it without a lot of hyperbole with the characterization. He does it without a lot of nothing really over the top or, or nothing too, you know, exaggerated. They're just drawn from life. It's, it's really great stuff. Um, but he's saying, uh, in weird fiction, the phenomenon is the real character. Which is fine. But I haven't read enough of Price to know how much of this advice he took in his own, in his own writing. Uh, next we have December 11th, 1932, which it's not a very short little fragment. It's, only, it's actually a few notes. And it's a, it's a kind of a poetic description of the death of a cat. It's, it's pretty sad. Uh, I wail, I yowl, I tear my fur and whiskers. The news cast a cloud of melancholy over all of Providence chapter of the Kappa Alpha Tall. Key, key, great battle axe of Eblis, heir of the predominant sultans, hath gone out to the night-hung hills of Never to join the great Nimrod, the guider of his youth. Ay, He's trying to make cat noises here. I am unable to do the calamity justice in a fitting dirge. Would the news of my hero's return might upset all of our lamentations. May Publican wax strong and vengeful and rally around, around him all the savage warriors in the, in the land for a mission of death in the purple hills, end quote. Is he just gone? Is, is this cat just, just ran away? Or did he really die? I think, I think the notes in the selected letters say he dies. It's a death king. Maybe he just ran away. Let's see here. Sorry. I'm searching through the notes here. Maybe he just ran away. It says lamentations for a cat in the in the table of contents. Anyway. Next, uh, December 20th. Um, so more great stuff on, on how to write and, and writing advice. Uh, talks about Text in literature, which is, of course, Lovecraft's most famous text in literature is the Necronomicon, but not by not, no means the only one. You have the Panoptic Manuscripts, and he borrows texts from other weird fiction writers when they were used, brings them into his own works. Uh, so he's definitely a fan of, of having texts as characters in literature. Another great thing, if you're not the most best at characterization, you can make a book central piece of your fiction right that's the people know the necronomicon more than they can probably name many of lovecraft characters right so it works for him he mentions a bunch of the, the 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 books that he created and what some that other people created as well so that's good stuff he's also got great stuff here about constructing a narrative um as well as as well as the need of cultures to have dreamers that's that's um i guess a shout out to himself he's a dreamer he's someone who's constructed stories from his dreams uh he was he had 
apparently very many vibrant dreams but he says so, like cultures with dreamers tend to be able to create something that cultures that don't have it i don't know how you determine a culture that does or does not have dreamers uh, he does seem to suggest here that some like india has a lot in america too few quote uh, in some cultures, of course, there is indeed a disconcerting lack of balance in one direction or the other. Too many dreamers, for instance, in India and too few in America. But in general, I think the ideal attitude for both dreamer and the doer to hold towards his opposite is that is one of live and let live. I always try to be fair towards the value of doers, even though my own instinctive sympathies are on the side of dreamers. Indeed, no one could have a higher respect for the accomplishment of doers than I have. All I really despise is the lot in that line is the material profit motive when carried beyond the stage, whereas linked with the maintenance of good living conditions. End quote. He also then criticizes some of the over, overwrought aesthetics um, as well. So actually no mention yet of the, the silver key. Uh, I think that might come a little bit later in their relationship here they're talking mostly about writing in fact the last letter uh we want to look at to e, uh, e hoffman price dated january 12 1933 um, talks about writing for the market he talks a little bit about his own work um, his views on writing revisions and his own you know he's doing it of course for money but at the same time he's able to complain about the problems of professional writing uh, as well and in this pretty substantial letter he also uh mentions can find it yeah uh the failures of of the soviet economic system in his view but it's, it's hard not to 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 ignore that the u.s economy at this time was was in collapse um but what's his problem with it well we'll read this passage here it's pretty good as for soviet russia i can't excuse its unnecessary demolition of those traditional folkways which give to normal life so much of its illusion of direction and purpose all this wreckage is perpetuated in the name of equality, which is, after all, a very meaningless mathematical thing. I agree that existing systems, especially plutocratic oligarchy, are unadapted to the problems of a mechanized future. But I don't think that such a, f a fanatical overturn is needed in order to restore the ability of willing workers to be sure of a decent livelihood. What will have to come will doubtless be allied to socialism. But that's a long way from the communism, which destroys half the zest of life to cater to the mere theoretical ideal. So that's more on his views of socialism and, and in particular, the Soviet system. All right, that's it. So, yeah, I, I guess I got ahead of myself saying they're going to start talking about the silver key revision. I think that comes in the next set of letters. All right. Uh, so next we have just one letter to Clark Ashton Smith on December 5th, which really is just a, a notice about the death of Henry S. Whitehead, uh, the, the other, which we've already sort of talked about. So there's not much there. Um, it's the same with his one letter in this, in this section to Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales, dated January 6th, 1932, which also talks about Whitehead's death. Now here, it's a little bit more framed in, in terms of of our loss of another weird fiction writer. Um, it's more of a kind of a eulogy. And, and I think he, his eulogy does appear in Weird Tales. So I don't know if it's adapted from, from this or not. I'll have to go check it out. Um, 
But he says, White House passing has caused more universal regret among the group than any other event of recent years. He was almost undoubtedly the most well-rounded character contributing to the pulp magazines, and it will be long before work of the Canvian caliber can be found again. I'm glad he furnished you with biographical data by which later notices can be checked. In my own rambling account, I forgot to mention that HSW was a liturgicalist of note, performing valuable services in many churches the great artistic arrangements of rituals and sacredal pageantry, unquote. So he adds a little bit to the biography of, of H.S. Whitehead for, for, I think, use in a memorial. And he does mention later on in a letter that he does, he does write the memorial. So right, it may be based on this or, or added later on. Or he adds to it later on. All right, uh... Then we have two letters to James Ferdinand Morton. They're both a day apart. So uh, the first is dated January 12th, which is just about personal life. It talks about his visit to New York and his meeting with the old gang. Um, and then we have a letter on January 13th, 1933, about ice cream flavors. So not much to say about that. Usually these uh, Morton letters are pretty good. Um, but sometimes they are just like friendly letters about personal life, and that's the case with these two. But if you want to know Lovecraft's opinions on ice cream flavors, you can find them in this January 13th uh, letter. And then finally, we have a January 20th, 1933 letter to Alfred Galpin. Um, this is kind of interesting. Um, it's about randomness and about fate. Um, now, the core idea here of course, is that human beings are essentially insignificant in this and irrelevant in this broader universe. Basically, human complexity, as complex as we are, is irrelevant to the complexity of the universe as a whole. And basically, our unimportance in the universe and in the randomness of the universe basically leads to, I guess, you could call it almost this definition of of fate but he's got some funny stuff here which i want to read um, he says have not lives been changed by the missing of a morning train or battles determined by what a general ate the night before many a man has married because he was drunk and george g nathan once pointed out that most of the great philosophers probably thought that the reasons as they did because of such minor and overlooked facts as diet digestion wife tempers deaths and so on a stomach ache may have just as much effect on the world as almost and almost as much an individual's thought as an ecstatic adoration of the Virgin Mary. What is more, you betray subjectiveness and conventionality in taking for granted the importance of such things as character, life, murder, marriage, procreation, and so on. What do these things really amount for in the cosmos? End quote. A great summation, I think, of, of, uh, of one interpretation of, of fate. So I think this is a good letter to look at. Um, so I guess that's it for this this uh look at these these letters uh in the next episode we'll be looking at the letters from i guess february till till may so if you're reading along it's it'll be those those letters up until april or may of of 1933 so that'll get us politically into the into the roosevelt presidency but as again i, I don't think there's too much mention of of that and those letters at all 
So anyways, um, a few interesting things to think about in this set of letters, a few kind of rehash of his philosophy, the death of H.S. Whitehead and the growing friendship with E. Hoffman Price, I guess, are maybe the most notable things to talk about in, in this set of letters. So as always, uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time as I dig deeper into Lovecraft's uh, letters. Thanks now we're again. strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say you've never Sharing all your